Giants, what I'm about. And what I'm about is an old school physical mentality. Okay? We're going to put a product on the field that the people of this city and region will be proud of. Because this team will represent this area. We'll play fast, we'll play downhill, we'll play aggressive. We'll punch you in the nose for 60 minutes, we'll play every play like it has a history and a life of its own with a relentless competitive attitude. Hello, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to Big Blue Avenue. I'm Tom Scavetta, joined alongside Hank and Dick there. Hank, thank you very much for joining me tonight. This is going to be a good show. Good show. Tom, as always, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Don't get me wrong. It may be opening night for our beloved New York Rangers, but of course, as always, I'm looking forward to recapping what was an interesting season and probably one of the better and more memorable giant seasons in recent memory. And yeah, it really has been a while since I got to say that, but anyways, I'm excited. How's it going, Tom? It's going great. I want to remind all of our fans, friends, followers, check us out below uh, on our ticker on all platforms. We have a link tree. We just made a link tree earlier this morning. So you can go check us out on all our social media accounts, Facebook, Instagram, Subscribe to our YouTube channel at Review and Preview Sports if you want all things exclusive Giants content. And we have content outside of the New York football Giants as well. And folks, if you're watching this live stream right now, you have any questions, comments, and analysis for us, feel free to chime in in the comments section. We will get back to you as soon as possible. So, Hank, we're taking a little different approach to the show tonight. Now, you know, the Giants season ended a little less than two weeks ago. However, uh, we're going to do our season recap show this week, and it was definitely a very, very um, interesting season for the New York football Giants. And, uh, Hank, it it was weird because I feel like we over-exceeded our expectations a little bit. We kind of, you know, we won games that we probably shouldn't have in, in the season, and, I'm, you know, at 6-10, and 10, there's still work to be done. But I'm really proud of the way this team played this year, especially down the stretch going five and three in their last eight games. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that because, like, before the season, I mentioned this a few times. I had the Giants at around six or seven wins. So, in a way, it was what I expected. But the way they won some of their games, like the Seattle game, which we will get to, for instance, like, those were definitely games that I, I wasn't expecting. And, I think the bottom line, the big thing that came out of the season, how's it going, Sam? I think it gave us hope for the first time in quite some time, probably since 2012, if, if you really think about it. Absolutely. I think that's definitely an interesting point. And Sam Cardona saying, hello, Sam, what's up? Uh, Sam is actually going to be joining us for a lot of our off-season content that we do with the New York football giants. Make sure to go check her out at the Girl Who Talks Sports podcast. She does a lot of great episodes over there. She had us very recently as well. So we look forward to working with her in the future. So without further ado, 
I'll get started with week one. So how this show is going to work tonight, we're going to go over all 16 games briefly, and we're going to go over some of our season takeaways, which we'll show that banner quick. We're going to give our high and our low point of 2020, and then we're going to reveal our top 10 New York Giants. So Hank and I each made a list of our top 10 Giants from this year's team. So we will be revealing that to all of you later on shortly. So you're going to want to sit uh, sit on the edge of your seat for that one. But Pittsburgh. So this was a Monday night football game. And I think a lot of people expected Pittsburgh to win this game. But the Giants made it really close, Hank. A uh, little bit too close for comfort at times for the Steelers. The Giants ended up losing. The final was 26-16. to 16, But this game was a foreshadowing of what was to come in 2020. The Giants, for the most part, made it close. Daniel Jones was pretty solid, threw for 280 yards, two touchdowns, both of them to Darius Slayton, and that was marred by some costly turnovers. Of course, the 19-play drive, if you remember, that that ended in the red zone when Jones threw an interception to Cam Hayward. Uh, That was very costly, cost the Giants points, and then What really hurt was Saquon Barkley only rushed for six yards the entire game. Our offensive line, very young, first game together, pretty much a completely new unit with the exception of Will Hernandez and Kevin Zeitler. And so the blame kind of went hand in hand there. But, Hank, you brought it up in the script, and I'm going to say it again. This was an early sign that this was a better coach Giants team than in years past. And can you explain why? Yes, and actually, let me expand on that. Before the season, I was kind of skeptical about the Joe Judge hiring. I didn't really know much about it other than the fact that he was a special teams coach. Gradually, as I listened to his press conference, as I saw how he went about training camp, I thought, hey, you know what? Maybe this guy might work. Once I watched this game, that's all I needed to know that he was going to be there for the long run. That's all I needed to know because the Giants played the Steelers very tough. It gave me a much different vibe than opening weeks in years past. The defense really held them. And you know what? I'll say this. He held them accountable after the game, but he also showed, he also acknowledged that there needed to be work done. So I was really impressed with him right from the get go. And you know what? I'm also going to add this point. Given what happened to the Steelers, remember that team started out 11 0. It begs the question. Do we think the Giants could have beaten them late, had this been later on in the season as opposed to week one? I was Absolutely. actually texting Dom, who many of you viewers who saw the first episode remember, he was or the first guest we ever had. He's a hardcore Steeler fan. I was texting him on the sideline, and he actually thought the same thing, believe it or not. And I remember texting him during the game. Even he thought the Giants looked like a much improved team at the time. Yeah, you know, a lot of people were very pleased with the way the Giants came out in week one. And... Blake Martinez was great. His first game as a Giant had 11 tackles. Leonard Williams had a sack. And, Hank, I'll throw it to you here as we head to week two in Chicago. Now, you and I actually got to watch this game together, and it came down to the final play. Yeah, I mean, this was a really strange game. I mean, obviously it was a critical because you lose Saquon Barkley to the ACL tear, first play of the second quarter, and the vibe after that was not great. People like, oh, well, there goes our season. Here we go, ready to tank. You and I didn't weren't thinking that. We were thinking, let's just make this a good game. Let's just see what we have the rest of the season. And you know what? I'll say this. They got off to a rough start. They were down 17-0 in the first half. And, you know, I think the big thing was the Daniel Jones turnovers. I think a few of them led to points, no? 
Yes, yes, yeah. they did. We had a lead in that game. Actually, no, Chicago no, was ahead 17-0. No, 17 nothing. You're right. No, we didn't score until the second half. But the things that stuck out to me in the second half, first off, the defense pitched a complete shutout in the second half, which was really good. It showed you another early sign they were a bend-but-not-break team. And not to mention, there were two turnovers that the Giants made in the second half. James Bradbury had a hand in both of them. The first one, he deflected Julian Love, you might remember. But the second one, that was the image that made me know that he was going to be a big pickup for the Giants. That image of him wrestling away the ball from Allen Robinson was huge. And I think it kind of sent a message. Now, ultimately, there were a few things that happened. First of all, there was that fourth and one that somehow that Bears offensive lineman Bobby Massey catches, which I think is more critical than people realize. Because remember, this ran out a lot more of the clock. I think the Giants might have had a better shot had they gotten the ball back on that turnover and downs. But what I also remember is even then, the Bears ticker, I think, what is it, Kyro Santos? He missed that. At, yeah, Kyro Santos. He misses the 50-yard field goal. And then Daniel Jones takes him to, what, the 10-yard line, and he comes pretty close. I think, what, you had the incomplete pass to Golden Tate, which either way wouldn't have counted because he got called for an offense pass interference. But, but – it was a close one. I would say this was a game the Giants should have won, but again, I didn't really expect much because, again, it was still a young team. You knew they were still trying to gel, to gel together, and the fact that they held their own against a really tough defensive Bears team in the second half, I think, said something. I agree, and we have a comment here from Kevin. Kevin asks, so glad the Browns beat Pittsburgh. Uh, yes, and the Giants also proved the recipe on how to beat Seattle. The Rams must have watched that game film for sure, so if you folks remember before Saturday's playoff loss by Seattle, their previous most previous loss was to our beloved New York Giants. And yep, Patrick Graham broke Seattle. He broke them. And I know we'll talk about the Se- I know we're a little bit ahead right now of the Seahawks game, but I've got to say, we really took it to them, and the Rams used a very similar recipe. And Seattle's defense is just not. Good. So that's credit to Patrick Graham and the Giants defense. They kept us in games all season long. Is there anything you wanted to add about the Chicago game, though, before we move on? Because my last thought on this was this was a very winnable game where we should have been one and one. The, the Bears looked awful in the, in the second half. Yeah, I agree. I really think there were, there were a few crazy plays away from the game being a completely different result. But again, what are you going to do? Things happen. It is what it is. So I'm going to let you talk about game three, which I think the less said about that game, the better. Yeah, but we are going to make a brief statement about the San Francisco game. Uh, I believe it was our worst performance of the season, 36 to nine loss. This game was a major step back after two hard fought contested games against the Steelers and the bears, two great defenses with edge rushers like TJ Watt and Khalil Mack. But now, We're going up against a banged-up 49ers team, and a lot of people thought the Giants would win this game, me being one of them, although I did pick San Francisco on our show. Uh, I told you, Hank, they're uh, boys in the trenches up front. McGlinchey, Trent Williams, those guys, the offensive line, they were going to play a huge factor, and that's what they did. Now, there was a huge turning point in this game in the second quarter where the score was kind of – you know, still within reach. Giants defense forced the Niners into a third down and 22. Now, third down and 22 – the game was tied at that point. Yes, you're correct. Uh, at that point, third and 22, your playbook is very thin. There's not much you could do except trying to make room for your punter. But 
what happens on this play was our rookie cornerback, fourth-round pick, Darnay Holmes, had an illegal contact penalty, which extended the drive. And then San Francisco, uh, Nick Mullins was quarterback that game for them. He, they continued to milk the clock, moved down the football field, 12 plays, six and a half minutes, leading to a Jarek McKinnon touchdown run. And then Daniel Jones in the following possession. Remember, San Francisco just takes the lead. And this is a point in the game again, folks, where Daniel Jones, he kind of cost us games early on in the season. Not kind of. He did the interception to Fred Warner, which allowed San Francisco to add a field goal right before the half. That was really tough. And then the Niners just poured it on to us in the second half. The turnovers and the O-line problems were huge in this game. In fact, the 49ers didn't punt once. Yeah, that game was the ultimate nightmare. I think, like, and like I said on the show, that third and, what was it, third and 22, that felt like an extra turnover. I think the Giants actually had four four in that game, but if you want to count the Darnay Holmes penalty, maybe five. Andy Hopper is saying hello. How are we doing, gentlemen? Andy, hope you're doing well. Um, I hope you watched the Bears game on Nickelodeon. That must have been some really fun shit uh, with Noah Eagle out there and the splash zone. Um that yeah, was fun. It was a very, very interesting weekend. Uh, shout out, Andy, all the way from Champaign, Illinois, watching our live stream. But, Hank, we're sitting here at 0-3, and we're going up against the Rams. And at this point, uh, expectations were very low heading into this game. Yeah, but you know what? I'll say this. The first drive, I remember thinking, oh, no, here we go again. They had that big touchdown by Austin Everett. But then on the next Rams possession I think he fumbled it he had like what a 10 yard reception and then Gerald Everett right yes correct Gerald Everett and even though they didn't really actually no yeah they did they did get a Graham Gano field goal and for the rest of the game it pretty much turned out to be a defensive struggle and the only other big play the Rams made I remember was the 55 yard touchdown catch by Cooper Cup really turned out to be the difference maker but the thing that really sticks out to me, I think this was also an old game. And Tom, you mentioned this in the last episode in the which game do you want se- back segment. You mentioned this game is a game you want back. And when I looked over all these games, I think you actually make a really good point because what stood out to me, it was fourth and 11, late in the fourth quarter. You have Graham Gano. You take the field goal. Your defense is playing it well enough. You still get the ball back, but Rather than taking the points, he decides to go for it. But then, obviously, that backfired. And then, I know the Giants got the ball back, but to be honest with you, Tom, this is one of those decisions where I did not agree with Joe Judge. You have the ball. You have a chance to get it back. There's no reason to go for it. And while, obviously, they still have one more chance, Giants were driving down the field, but then there was that pick that Daniel Jones threw to Darius Williams. And who knows? Maybe if they score a touchdown, they get the two-point conversion. I don't know, but again, we wouldn't. We're not even having this discussion if he if he just takes the points instead. It was it was a it was a rough game, but you know what? Blake Martinez again, thirteen tackles, eight in the solo, and I think once again, it, it really told us a lot about what this Giants team is. And the next week against Dallas was another rough one. And Tom, I'll let you take that one. What do you have any more thoughts about that Rams game? No, you pretty much covered it all. It was disappointing, although we were really doing a nice job hanging in there, keeping the game close. And the next week we had license plate guy on to preview the Cowboys game, the infamous Joe Ruback, uh, 
from New City, New York, up in Rockland County. He's definitely a, a big public figure. He's probably, you know, every team has that one fan that you're like, wow, he's like a super fan. <laughs> and you know how the Jets have Fireman Ed. Well, for the Giants, it's license plate guy. And of course, it was great to have him on our podcast uh, previewing the Dallas game. And before we get there, Andy Hopper has a question I want to get to. He's asking, who do the Giants take in the first round? So it's interesting because you can never predict who the Giants are taking in the draft. You just have no clue because last year everybody thought it would be an offensive lineman. Um, some people thought it would be Isaiah Simmons. He was the hot name. Whoever the hot name is is usually not who it is, with the exception of Saquon Barkley, right? Nobody thought Daniel Jones at six. Nobody yeah, thought no, Andrew, I barely even heard Daniel Jones's name up until that draft. Nobody thought Andrew Thomas at four. A name I've heard a lot over the recent couple of days is Kyle Pitts, tight end out of Florida. Uh, I personally would love that. I think he would be a good complimentary tight end to Evan Ingram, or if we decide to trade him, that would save us $6 million in cap. So I wouldn't be opposed to that. I know we picked up his fifth-year option, so – if the Giants can get a tight end like Kyle Pitts in the first round, I think he could potentially be there at 11. Reason being, Jets and Dolphins both in need of wide receiver help. If the Jets don't take a quarterback second overall, they could very well take Devontae Smith. It, it depends who they hire as head coach, Andy. So I think he might be off the table. And then Philadelphia is going to want a wide receiver as well, unless Howie Roseman pulls a classic Roseman and doesn't take one or takes somebody that he shouldn't at that selection. So at that point, you could potentially have Smith and Jamar Chase off the board. Who's the next best option? Do you trust Kyle Pitts? Do you want to take a chance at Jalen Waddell? Do you like Gregory Russo, the edge rusher out of Miami? I personally think Kyle Pitts would be the best pick. And uh, Andy says Pitts can actually catch, so that would be nice for your tight end room. Hank, who do you think? Yeah, opinion. I was thinking Waddle or the wide receivers, but the guys you mentioned, I'm assuming are probably going to be taken by the time the Giants are on the board. Yeah, Pitts, I saw a few highlights of him. That guy's a beast. He can catch it, and I most certainly would take him over a certain 88. You know who I'm talking about. We won't mention his name until later. We mentioned this a couple nights ago on Review and Preview. Evan Ingram would be an excellent volleyball setter. No, he really would. That would be an excellent position. If you're the cause of six of our ten quarterback interceptions in the season, then, hey, um, that would be a good spot for you. But another guy is a cornerback in Patrick Sertain from Alabama. I'm very intrigued by him as well. He could be an option yes. for us at number 11 if he's there. Uh, last time the Giants took a corner in the first round was 2016 with Eli Apple around uh. the same spot, Andy. So I think oh, that was he's an option. One. You can't go wrong with a, with a battle player, though. Yeah, uh, no, that's another good draft. one. Sertan, I would not be opposed to either, but I would say probably him or Smith, basically. These are the guys, and keep in mind, these are the guys I'm saying that I'm assuming will be on the board when we get to the draft day, if that makes Absolutely. sense. How about All them right. Cowboys? How about them Cowboys? Am I up or are you up? I think I'm no, up. No, you're up. And, um, okay. You're up. And by the way, before you go, I want to add, that was a lot of fun having the LPG on, on our podcast. He basically brought a lot of insights and I love the passion that he's displayed, man. Like he he's true blue and he's, he's probably forgotten more about the giants than we remember. 
Absolutely. He's an old school guy as well. But let's talk about the Cowboys. So in this game, Slayton was great, had 129 receiving yards. This was one of his better games of the season, had a tumor-esque toe drag catch in the first quarter. Giants had a 14-3 lead in this game. They came out zooming out of the gate, flying, I should say, an Evan Ingram touchdown and then a pick six by Kyler Fackrell on defense. And then all of a sudden, before the half, the game is tied at 17. Zeke had a touchdown, and then a Daniel Jones turnover. Had a, he had a fumble, which Jones, we know, between interceptions and fumbles, he was a turnover machine in the first half of the season. And then the Giants tied at 17. They'd have a fake field goal touchdown. I believe Riley Dixon threw it to Ingram, and that was nullified due to, um, again, this was the start of the controversial calls on this game. That went both ways, by the way. And as a result, the Giants would have to settle for three. They'd go up 20-17. to 17. Um, Hank, personally, this play made me sick. I thought uh, they caught Dallas off guard, but they couldn't execute. I believe I, – I can't, I can't quite remember who the penalty was on. It might have been an offensive lineman. If I remember correctly, I think you pointed out they called it on the wrong guy, no? Yeah, I think I remember, they, like, hmm. they called it on one guy, but if you look at the replay, there was somebody else doing that. But nevertheless, it was it was kind of a ticky-tacky call that you don't always see. Hmm. But but nevertheless, it hurt, because I think that was one of the better executed trick plays that the Giants made all year. And it would have been nice to get that touchdown. But then, unfortunately, and because the football gods can be cruel, the Cowboys executed their own trick play, and they successfully got that touchdown. And that was Dak Prescott catching a Philly special. It was. That was a great play for them. They caught the Giants' defense off guard. Uh, another touchdown will be nullified for the Giants. Darius Slayton unable to um, convert the 31-yard touchdown pass. And again, the Giants would have to settle for a field goal, so they'd be down 24-23. to 23. Dallas had a one-point lead. Dak Prescott would leave due to a gruesome injury. Terrible uh, moment for Dallas and just the NFL in general because Dak Prescott has been a really good quarterback over these last few years, and it's something you hate to see. He was putting up record numbers to start the season for Dallas despite their 1-3 record at the time. I think they were 1-4 uh, now. No, because it was week five, and they'd only won one game. Did they have a bye week? No. Oh, okay. No, no, they yeah, were, they were one not... and three heading into that. We were 0 and no, 4. No, yeah, you're right. They were an Atlanta Falcons choke away from being 0 and 4, I think. The trick plays continued, though. Blake Martinez would recover a fumble, led to a Devontae Freeman touchdown. So then the Giants would get the lead 32 to 31. And then we see the Andrew Thomas two point conversion play, which was one of my personal favorite plays of the season, where he's open in the left corner of the end zone. Unfortunately, though, the Giants couldn't hold on. Cowboys would tie it on a field goal. Greg the leg Zerline coming in key. And uh, the big loss came at the expense of Lorenzo Carter. Uh, towards Achilles tendon, Dallas would go on to win this football game 37-34. The Giants' offense looked good, but Dallas's offense looked better. You got to give a lot of credit to Andy Dalton and the pieces of the puzzle that he connected late in the game. He's definitely one of the better backups in the league, Hank. And at that time, the Giants defense was still very young, trying to connect the dots. And I think mm -hmm. Andy Dalton's success, it was 
I mean, it was in part due to the fact that the Giants really couldn't get much of a pass rush on him. You talk about Leonard Williams, and right. Dallas had a lot of backup alignment in there. They didn't have Tyron Smith or Lael Collins. Mm-hmm. So you got to give Dallas a lot of credit in that game. Yeah, definitely. I know there were a lot of controversial calls. There was a holding call, too, on the Dallas drive, too. I think that one that that, that the refs missed also. You, you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I was more mad about that. Um, but regardless, the Giants didn't but, play well enough in the, in no, the second. No, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, they had they took the lead, and then Dallas had the ball back. I think that Giant. I was really hoping on that Giants last drive that they could somehow get in a field goal range. But unfortunately, I think they had like what five or six plays, and then they got the gave the ball back to Dallas. And I kind of knew from that point, especially having seen past Giant games, that it wasn't going to end well, and it didn't. And yeah, that's another game that you really want to have back. But again, what can you do? It is what it is. But this next game. This one, I think we both kind of had a feeling the Giants were going to win this one. Although, I have to say, this one was very sloppy. And I would probably say that was a gift. They started off pretty well. They they got a field goal. Then then James Bradbury had a clutch interception. And, of course, it led to the 23-yard touchdown pass from Daniel Jones to Darius Slayton. And just like that, it was 10-0 Giants. And I kind of figured, hey, they're playing Washington, a team we've been very familiar with over the years. Easy win, right? Yeah, no, it's the Giants. What do you expect? Anyways, another another cool highlight in the first half, there was a 49-yard run by Daniel Jones. Now, obviously, we know this isn't going to be the last exciting Daniel Jones run that we'll talk about, but I guess you could say it was a bit of a foreshadowing as to what would happen later in the season. And then we got to talk about the second half because the second half, don't get me wrong, I don't want to sound like a sore winner here because this was a game that we won, and I know Giants wins have been far between. This was kind of brutal to watch. And keep in mind, I watched this game not necessarily knowing the results. I was actually at work that day, and I was watching the tape-recorded version, although someone kind of tipped me off as to what the score was. But I'll say this. wasn't me. The Giants had, like, three offensive possessions in the second half. And I'm not counting the fourth one that ended with the QB kneel down. But the fact of the matter is they were all brutal. They couldn't pick up points, and the worst one was Daniel Jones throwing that pick in the end zone. And if you remember correctly, if I remember correctly, that was a controversial call too, because I think the guy might have been out of bounds. But regardless, it looked a lot like the Cam Hayward pick in Week One, if you might remember, because it wasn't really a ball that Daniel Jones should have thrown, even though it, you know, it might have been, it might not have been the best throw. I still think, or best call, I still don't think it was the right play. But the Giants did catch a big break though, because. Later in the fourth quarter, you'd get that big scoop and score, 43-yard touchdown by Mr. Not-So-Irrelevant, Tay Crowder, to give the Giants the lead. But, of course, we know Washington wasn't going to go away quietly. They would score on the following drive, a 22-yard pass from Kyle Allen to Cam Sims. But here's where the Giants catch a real break. Rather than go for the tie and maybe play for overtime, which would have probably been the safe thing, Ron Rivera... No, living up to his nickname, Riverbound Boat Ron, he decided to go for it. And he tried a Kyle Allen pass to, ter- to scary Terry McClure in the end zone. Incomplete. The Giants hang on for dear life. It was Joe Judge's first career win. And I'll tell you this, too. In addition to that scoop and score, Tate Crowder also had 10 tackles. So this was like his 
his real breakout game for the Giants. And also Matt Peart made his first career start filling in for Andrew Thomas. You might remember Andrew Thomas actually did not start due to disciplinary reasons. He was late for a meeting, but fortunately judge held him accountable and Andrew Thomas said, that's not going to happen again. And as far as we know, I don't think he really was involved in any other big trouble later in the season at all. One shot wonder. (laughs) I'll tell you this. This was, this was a real sloppy game and a real odd way for the Giants to get their first win. And it's a game that against most other teams, they probably would have lost, but you know what? I gladly accepted that win and it was much needed given who the next opponent was one that had beaten us many times in the past. And if you know what game we're talking about, it was another one that was really brutal. It was, it was Philadelphia. And um, without further ado, just want to, uh, Pause for a 30-second identification. Really, Tom? So we're, yeah. in Philadelphia. We're, we're in Philadelphia now. I, I had to physically bring us there for this game. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I don't blame you. Um, I'm not, as much as I don't really like the city that much, that was a cool clip you made. So yeah, thank you for that. I remember we interviewed Mike Vivolo this week uh, or that week from True Blue New York Giants before the Philadelphia game. In fact, it was on the night of the game. It was on uh, Thursday night. So short week for the Giants coming off their first win. We have a chance to win two games in a span of four to five days. And, you know, Daniel Jones, very hit or miss. He Again, it took him – he had a five-week – no, it was a four-week spell without throwing a touchdown pass. He had two in week one, and then he had one in week six. Weeks two through five, the man did not throw a touchdown. That's disturbing. And now in week seven, I mean, he had a better start to the game. But it really it, it was tough because when you're playing Philadelphia, right? This is a team just the Giants historically have not done well against over the past 20 to 30 years. Both teams scored on their opening drive, right? Once Carson Wentz got that one yard touchdown run, I'm like, all right, that's it. But then Golden Tate had a nice touchdown catch. Getting Golden Tate involved in the offense is never a bad thing. But Philly did lead 10 to 7 at the half. However, the Giants, they dodged multiple bullets. Bradbury had a pick in the end zone. And then if you remember, Hank, I believe it was Jake Elliott shanked like a 21. Was it a 21 he yard did, field? He goal? missed a chip shot. I remember that. I think it was I think it was around 20, 27 yards or something like that. Okay, I was about to say it I don't was less than what it was less than what an extra point is now. That I know. Yeah. Um but you're right. The Eagle the Giants really didn't play all that well in the first half. So it, I was saying, well, I was telling you through text during that game, they were lucky to be only be trailing by three. They were. And in the second half, we saw the infamous Daniel Jones 80-yard run that resulted in a comical trip that you may see uh, memed on your social media accounts, folks. Daniel Jones, again, he wasn't trying to trip, but that field man, he just couldn't. He just couldn't the internet's undefeated. The internet's undefeated. <laughs> yeah, but Gallman would save the day getting the touchdown, wrapping it up. Giants later on would go on a 97-yard drive. Had a couple of big runs by Gallman. Again, 
and Sterling Shepard would have a touchdown, putting the Giants up 21 to 10. This was Shepard's first game back from injury. Shepard also quietly left the game against the Bears in week two due to an injury, along with Saquon Barkley. So he missed he missed weeks three through six. So he came back for this game. Now, Giants are up by 11 points. Philadelphia is not going night-night yet. We know historically Philadelphia is known for comebacks against our football team. On the next drive, they'd inch closer. They'd get a Wentz touchdown to Greg Ward. And then around 2.14 left in the fourth quarter, Giants are facing a third and seven. And this is the lowest of lows of 2020 for this team. All we needed was seven yards, a first down, to put the game away. Jason Garrett calls an outstanding play. Evan Ingram is wide open. The ball's in his hands, and he drops it. Had a first down, game would have been over. But nevertheless, Riley Dixon comes out to punt, and Philadelphia would capitalize going six plays, 71 yards. Carson Wentz threw an 18-yard touchdown to Boston Scott. And then last-ditch effort, not much time left. Philadelphia now has the lead, 22-21. to Jones gets sacked by Brandon Graham, forced fumble, recovered by Vinnie Curry to seal the deal. Yet another heartbreaking loss in Philadelphia. Um, you know, it's not so sunny for us down there. We haven't won there in quite some time. So now the Giants all of a sudden are one and I want to say one and six. Yep, one and six. Yeah. And we're not looking good. I I know we end up losing the next week too, but this was our low point of 2020. Yeah, the next game, I will say this, the next the next game they played a little bit better. They that the next game even though it wasn't Daniel Jones' best game. I mean, I know he threw for 256 yards, but those two turnovers came back to hurt them. And not to mention he would also overthrow guys like Sterling Shepard and Darius Slayton. But also the interceptions, those were not balls that he should have thrown. But I will say this. The Giants led 14-3. And Shane Lemieux had a decent game starting in place of Will Hernandez. But the big thing I took out of this game was this is where you start to see you started to see the improvement of Andrew Thomas. He played much better. I think this might have been right around the time where Joe Judge told him, hey, go play like you played in Georgia. And sure enough, he did. And he improved dramatically. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later once we get to our play, our top 10 players. But another big thing was Wayne Gallman having 62 yards from scrimmage and that touchdown. This was another guy who I think slowly improved over the course of the season from here too. He, he, I think this was also, no, I take that back. I think this is the second game in a row he had a touchdown. But as we get into more games, we'll see he has a big streak. Sterling Shepard, this guy, in my opinion, was probably our most clutch receiver of the season. Eight catches, 74 yards. 30 of those came on the last drive. And I think he slowly got – he's another guy that slowly got better over the course of the season. But, of course, as we know, 25-17, the Giants had one more chance to tie it. They did get a nice touchdown pass from Jones to Tate, but unfortunately the two-point conversion was unsuccessful. Ultimately, though, I think besides Andrew Thomas, I think the other important thing to take from that game, this was when you started to realize – even though this defensive unit, as great as they performed this season, they were flawed. And the way they performed, that's a big credit to Patrick Graham. He instituted a lot of really good schemes that helped the Giants win games that, as we'll later talk about, were games that they probably otherwise shouldn't have won. So 
I'm not one that likes to look at things as moral victories, but I think this was the closest after like the early part of the season that I really came to really think of thinking of something as a moral victory for the Giants. I don't know about you. It's weird because the Giants beat Tampa Bay last year, and now we're talking about a two-point loss as a moral victory. But any game you play that's tightly contested against Tom Brady is a moral victory, considering Tom Brady cannot find a way to consistently beat this franchise. This franchise will haunt him for the rest of his life. Um, I, I use that as my way of explaining why Eli was a better quarterback than people realize, but that's a tangent for another day. So coming off a 25-23 loss to Tampa Bay, now we're halfway through the season at 1-7. and One win, seven losses. Our backs are against the wall. We're going up against Washington in week nine. We just saw them three weeks ago. We get them again for the second time. Giants win this one 23-20, getting their second win of the season. Blake Martinez was great, 10 tackles and had a key interception. Giants jumped out to a 20-3 lead in the first half including Evan Ingram, our favorite volleyball setter, his first touchdown of the season. In the second half, however, we were outscored 17-3. to We couldn't finish. Uh, Well, we thought we weren't going to be able to finish. As Washington attempted to take the lead twice, though, Alex Smith, who came in relief in this game, he threw a couple of interceptions, one to Jabril Peppers, another to Logan Ryan. Smith had three picks in this game the defense ended up forcing five turnovers spicy peppers and logan ryan each had two crazy fourth quarters and daniel jones also had his first turnover turnover free game we got to give the man credit where credit is due uh we won the turnover battle five nothing it's not saying much when you're beating washington by three points but with the way washington played later in the season down the stretch these two wins turn out to be a little more prestigious than what was advertised at the time. James Bradbury continued to be a lockdown cornerback, only giving up one reception in the game. And overall, we saw this. In the second half of the season, the team started to look more disciplined, folks. No turnovers, only four penalties, and we won the time of possession, 36-23. to 23. Now we're sitting there at 2-7, and seven, and Hank, there's a glimpse of hope. Heading into Week 10, looking for our revenge against the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah, and to piggyback what you said, I think that the the fact that Daniel Jones did not have a turnover, I think looking back, this game gave me more, more hope because when you look at Washington, this was probably one of the best defenses that we played all year, and the fact that we won both games, and in this one you had a much better performance from Daniel Jones, I think that kind of sort of says something that maybe he's capable of doing things in the future, but Let's get back to another game, and this one really gave me hope for the future. This was our chance to get our first win against the dreaded Eagles since 2016. And you know what? In this one, I think Daniel Jones actually had an even better performance. He threw for 244 yards. He had a 100.9 passer rating. Obviously, I don't know how much people like to look into PFF, but he had an 84.2 grade and shows you how well he did. But, of course, one of the other big players in this game was the Wayne Train. Gallman had his fourth consecutive touchdown game with the touchdown he actually scored two the second one was the response to the big boston scott touchdown at the beginning of the second half and if you remember that was one area where the eagles kind of had a good edge but obviously that was inflated by that big boston scott touchdown and as it turned out this was the fifth straight game the giants ran for over 100 yards running the trenches that would be one of their big 
the big keys to a lot of their wins. And this game was no different. And in addition, not, you didn't just have the Goldman runs. You also had the Daniel Jones touchdown in the beginning of the fourth, first quarter, 34 yard touchdown. And I don't know about you, but when watching this play, it reminded me a lot of the 80 yard touchdown run he ran in the previous game against Philadelphia. The only difference is obviously he didn't trip, but even Jim Schwartz after the game went as far as to say that it was literally the same play. So it was really interesting, but of course, Eagles, you knew they were going to make things interesting. It's never a Giants-Eagles game where it's over in the second half. But with that having been said, James Bradbury made a huge defensive play. Giants were up by seven, and Philly was in a fourth down situation of their own. He deflected a pass from Carson Wentz that was intended for Jalen Rager that pretty much sealed the game. I guess really the only downside about this game was the one guy on the Eagles that was torching us was backup tight end Richard Rodgers. But then again, knowing Giants, they, their defense has always been allergic to tight ends. It is what it is. But with that having been said, it was a great game. And not to mention Jabril Peppers is another guy who gets a good mention. He got seven tackles, even at a half sack too. So that it was a really big win. And it really gave people a lot of hope. And it changed a lot about this division because remember, Lots of people were saying Philly was going to be the team that probably won the division. Remember, Carson Wentz, if you really look at it based on the quarterbacks, he was probably the best. And considering that Philly had been in the playoff for the past three years, it wasn't exactly far-fetched to think this. But then this is also when the Giants started to turn up momentum. And not to mention, it was their first – it was Daniel Jones's first win besides his debut against Tampa against a team not named Washington. So I think that win really did a lot for the Giants. And considering it was against a team that had, that had pretty much haunted the Giants for, I would say, a little bit more than a decade, that was big. It was definitely big, too. That put the Giants at 3-7 and seven for the year. I know we talked to uh, Sporty Jordy and Sam Cardona that week. We had our back, talked about the Eagles game and how the Giants were starting to creep towards the uh, front runners in the NFC East at the time, heading into the bye at week 11. Couldn't have happened at a better time. Graham Gano gets a three-year, $14 million contract extension right after the Philadelphia game. A couple days later, he's diagnosed with COVID-19. Luckily, the Giants had a bye, so he was um, able to return off our bye in week 12 against the Cincinnati Bengals, a game that was very tightly contested. It was played without Joe Burrow. The Bengals had, we originally thought we were going to get Ryan Finley. And then I believe a day or two before our podcast that week, it was announced Brandon Allen would start a quarterback for Cincinnati. So and to start off the break room, when that announcement was made, shout yeah. out to Andy Hopper for creating the term break room bombshell. <laughs> and um, James, we don't like you for posting this. So uh, keep your, keep your thoughts and comments to yourself. <laughs> just kidding. I know it's uh I Still checked the score earlier. It's three nothing in the first Still early. Yeah. Um so Evan Ingram made a nice fifty-three yard catch to start the Cincinnati game. Now we're three and seven going up against them, and this would lead to a Wayne Gallman touchdown. We get on the board early. Gallman now has a touchdown in five straight games. The kid's looking great. And Ingram, again, another Jekyll and Hyde performance, another drive, Gallman. Uh, Ingram would fumble after catching an 18-yard pass, but then catches a 44-yard pass later on, making up for it in a sense. And, you know, this was crazy. This is a game where Daniel Jones had zero turnovers. Again, third straight game with no turnovers. But 
fortunately for him, once his play started to improve, his body started to derail. He left the game in the third quarter with a hamstring injury, tried to return, but Colt McCoy would have to finish it up. It was a really weird game. I mean, we had Nico Lalos making his Giants debut, ended up with an interception. He stepped up on the defense, keeping the Giants around. And even though the Giants were clearly the better team, they let the Bengals hang around for too long. Fourth quarter, we're up 13-10. to 10. McCoy overthrows Deion Lewis. That would have resulted in a Giants touchdown. We have to settle for three. So we leave four points off the board, folks. And I think that uh, if Daniel Jones had thrown that, that would have been a touchdown. Looking at that pass. He, I, I hate playing the what-if scenario, Hank. It's just – I know you don't, but looking at that, I there's no doubt in my mind that would have been a touchdown if Jones threw it. Right. Um, but regardless, Cincinnati would get the ball back. Logan Ryan had a nice um, – had a nice key punch fumble, led the Giants in this game in tackles. But the Bengals, they would get a field goal. They would tack on, uh, I believe they were down 19 to 10. And at that point, I'm just sitting there just saying, hold on, guys. And since he, they, they would score, they would score a touchdown to inch closer. Giants were unable to salt the game away. Cam Brown probably made the play of the game. Uh, we're up by two, 19-17. We're pumping to Cincinnati. And Alex Erickson returns a punt for, I believe, 22 yards, pretty much getting tackled at midfield by Cam Brown. Cincinnati still had time, but then the following play, Jabal Sheard sacks Brandon Allen, forces a fumble, recovered by Leonard Williams in a fetal position to secure the victory for the Giants. And fun fact, it was the first ever win in Cincinnati for this football team. Giants improve to four wins, seven losses, heading into week 13 in Seattle. And now, of course, we're going to get to one of probably arguably the highest point of the season. Colt McCoy obviously had to start this game. We know Daniel Jones was not feeling well with the hamstring and I think obviously that was the right move. You don't want to re-aggravate the hamstring, but we'll get to we'll get to another move that wasn't so great a week later. But anyways, he was Cole McCoy, as I said on that episode, he was serviceable. He wasn't spectacular, but he did whatever was necessary to keep us in this game. First half, obviously, was a defensive struggle. But I'll tell you this: they did give up that field goal early in the game. That was the first drive. They bent but didn't break. And let's talk about the penny heart thing real quickly like obviously you remember Riley Dixon had a punt that was blocked the ball would go all the way in the end zone Penny Hart was the Seahawks receiver that looked like he was going to recover it but his hand was not quite in bounds and Seattle only got the two points in for a safety and personally I think this was the real turning point of this game five nothing and ten nothing are two different scores well obviously assuming the Seattle kicker makes the extra point but anyways it's a difference in this game because obviously we're down by one score. And I think had it been a 10, nothing game, I don't think the giants wouldn't have been able to run the ball or implement their running strategy as successful as they did. And as we'll probably get into a week later, but I do think that was a very important break. And in the second half, they were able to capitalize it because that was when you started seeing Wayne Goldman. He had those two big running plays. Each of them led to touchdowns by Alfred Morris. And, it was interesting enough because Wayne Gallman actually had his touchdown streak program. That obviously didn't matter because he still kind of had big runs that, you know, led the scores. 
And a lot of credit, obviously, for those runs goes to the offensive line. It was yet another stellar performance. And if I'm not mistaken, I don't think Andrew Thomas allowed a single sack this game, no? He did not. He neutralized Carlos Dunlap. He was very impressive. And I think my favorite part about this game, there really were a wide variety of players that stepped up on the defensive side of the ball. Nico Lylos had a fumble recovery. His second turnover force in in two games. Probably the first Giants do that in like 70 years. Blake Martinez, 10 tackles, a a pass selected, and a forced fumble. Obviously, not surprised to see him coming up big. Tay Crowder, again, Mr. Not-So-Irrelevant. First career sack, seven tackles, and one of them for a loss. And then, not to mention, Spicy Peppers with five tackles, a sack, and one of them for a loss, and two passes deflected. And, of course, this was the guy that we said was our player of the game in Laird Williams. He he made the play that pretty much helped seal the deal later on. But, of course, before we get to that, let's talk about how this game kind of scared us. Darnay Holmes did have his first career interception and five tackles, but, of course, he did take a bad penalty with Seattle facing third and 15. That would have sealed the game otherwise because they probably would have kicked the field goal, but we know they got a touchdown. Giants get the ball back. They milk a good amount of clock, but not enough to where they can get points. And so Seattle has one more chance to get it. But in the end, Leonard Williams had a big sack on Russell Wilson. It put the Seahawks at fourth and 18. And who makes the big play to seal the deal? None other than Bradbury Bunker. And, you know, to get back to what Kevin said earlier, I think this game pretty much helped seal the deal with, um, or actually, no, sorry, let me take that back. I think this was the game that really showed people the the key formula to how to beat the Seahawks. They put a lot of pressure on Russell Wilson, and I think clearly the LA Rams got the message, and obviously we saw what happened in their game. But nonetheless, it was a huge win for the Giants, and it put them in pretty decent position. But unfortunately, our joy from that week was kind of short-lived. And Tom, I'm going to let you take over and talk about what I kind of think was the low point of the season, and that was the Cardinals game. So the Giants, five wins, seven losses. We're right where we need to be in the thick of the race at the NFC East at that point. We're in first place, uh, and we controlled our own destiny. Giants were looking real sharp, and we're playing against Arizona with a full load of confidence, and there's a chance Daniel Jones returns, which, in fact, he did. However, the game turned out to be a dud as the Giants would fall to uh, Arizona 26 to seven. The game, it was weird. Uh, Hassan Reddick had five sacks for the Cardinals. And again, we're going up against a lot of former Giants in this game. The Von Kennard, Josh Morrow, Marcus Golden, all pass rushers. And then Justin Pugh, of course, he's on the offense. But the old line gave up eight sacks, five to Reddick. And then early on, ex Giant, first drive of the game, Marcus Golden recovers a fumble early. And Jones just didn't look like himself. His mobility was compromised. He didn't have a single rushing attempt and only threw for 127 yards, which is unacceptable. Now, we're down 6 nothing in this game because Arizona wouldn't convert the PAT. The key backbreaker, in my opinion, was when Deion Lewis attempted to return a kickoff from the end zone. Not much protection. Fumbles the football, and then four plays later, We see a touchdown pass to Dan Arnold. Uh, I like to call it the lollipop touchdown, the play where Kyler Murray just kind of throws it up for grabs, and there's big 6'5", Dan Arnold, goes up with both hands and racks it in like a basketball player. 
Um, and then at that point, it was tough to watch the offense in this game. They didn't reach the 50-yard line until the second half where Jones would get the Giants on the board, 39-yard touchdown pass to Golden Tate. But this game was a pure example of missed opportunities. Kenyon Drake had two fumbles. The defense was unable to recover either of them. That was my biggest um, turning point of this game, Arizona being able to keep uh, possession on those plays. A bright spot for the Giants. Again, Brill Peppers continued to live up to his name and prove to us why he's spicy. 13 tackles and a forced fumble. This was a game, again, this team's young, folks. This is a they, they weren't bad this year because they were bad. I mean, it, it was a young football team that was improving throughout the course of the year. Xavier McKinney made his first career start. And, yes, Daniel Jones starting this game was a mistake, but you learn from your mistakes. And ultimately speaking, uh, I didn't expect to lose this game the way that we did. But the Giants, they refuse to quit even when they go through those bad games and bad moments. Yeah, and kind of to piggyback off your point that you made earlier, I think – I think the fumble recoveries that were missed and I think the the uh, Deion Lewis play, I think those kind of go hand in hand because, like, obviously, if the Giants aren't down by so many, those those missed uh, fumble recoveries aren't as critical, obviously. But, of course, the Deion Lewis play, I think that was the difference between us winning the Seattle game, whereas we had the lucky Penny Hart, like, failure to receive it in, in the end zone. And then you have the Deion Lewis fumble and Arizona capitalized on that mistake. Obviously, the Giants couldn't necessarily get the whole running the ball in the trenches strategy in the second half that week as they did in Seattle. So I think that's another thing worth mentioning. But nonetheless, it wasn't a great loss. I didn't necessarily think it was going to be a blowout like it was. But again, like you meant, you said, it was a real learning experience. And I think another one was the game the following week. And this is a game where they actually were without James Bradbury because he was in contact with someone with COVID. And then, of course, Jason Garrett, the offense coordinator, who actually did contract COVID. So the Giants, obviously, this was an interesting game because they actually seemed to move the ball better with Freddie Kitchens calling plays. However, there were a few plays that kind of – that I'm not going to say they were bad ideas because, again, you and I are both in the school of let's take the points if we're in field goal range. However, I'm I'm not usually one that's against the idea of going forward on fourth down. As I and this would be a perfect segue to the fake field goal attempt, which obviously that was not a well executed play. I don't know what Judge was thinking, trying to have Riley Dixon throw the ball to Nick Gates. That not good. <laughs> Just I don't want to see that replay. Or, it was bad. But again, I don't I don't blame him for the idea. I just think that was a poorly executed play. But anyways, Cleveland, I got to give them credit. They were they were very efficient. The first drive, they used a solid run game mixed in with 19 yards each from Harrison Bryant and Austin Hooper. Took six and a half minutes off the clock, and obviously Hooper caught a two-yard touchdown pass to give them the lead. And then the Giants would get another long drive into the Cleveland red zone. But, of course, this was another controversial call. Fourth and two, they're in the Cleveland red zone. And, oh, by the way, I there was a field goal before, but I'm kind of jumping a bit. This was another critical moment because it was fourth and two and this one was kind of confusing because they were running the ball with Alfred Morris mostly on this drive but then the real puzzler was why are you using Wayne Gallman now like after after using Alfred Morris do why not go with what works 
again, this one I don't have as much of a problem with as the first one because if it's fourth and two and you're running the ball, it makes sense. I just don't necessarily know why you used Wayne Gallman when Alfred Morris was the one doing the best work on this drive. And, yeah, it kind of – and what made this whole failed gamble worse, Browns would get the ball back at the five-yard line and they would go all 95 yards, pretty much putting the icing on the cake for what was a dominant second quarter. You get it, and it was capped off by a touchdown pass from Baker Mayfield, Jarvis Landry, and yeah, that was pretty much the game. The second half, nothing really big happened. You just had pretty much field goals from the Browns and the Giants. And I think the big thing that everybody took away from this game, we're not always going to agree with the play calling of Joe Judge. Obviously, as Giant fans, we all like the guy. We all support him. He's a great coach, and he's done an excellent job. But his execution on fourth on fourth downs was not the best this game. However, I do think, I do like that he was aggressive. I like that. I like what he said at the end of the game when he said field goals aren't going to win you games. And you know what? He's absolutely right. Because against a team like the Cleveland Browns, who is a really deadly running attack and who has good weapons at wide receiver and tight ends, that's a good point. And I think later on when the Giants get better, his willingness to be aggressive could end up serving them well. But again, it was another game that sh- that really showed to be another learning experience for the Giants, in my opinion. As with the next game against the Ravens, and this one probably looked almost as bad from the start, too. Yeah, and you mentioned field goals don't win you games, and it was tough because the offense wasn't doing much. The defense, remember, we also lost Brett Bielema that week to Illinois. He took a head coaching job, mm-hmm. one of our assistant coaches on defense, and then you know, we still held Cleveland to 20 points. So that's definitely something to be proud of defensively. Mm-hmm. Week 16, we're five and nine, five wins, nine losses. And now the Giants are pretty much in a must win scenario to try to control their own fate again. And they going up against the smoking hot Baltimore Ravens who were on a roll. They were nine and five. And in the first half, the Ravens, they would have four long time consuming drives, all of which resulted in points while the giants only had the ball three times the entire first half only showing three points. So at halftime, Baltimore was up 20 to three. We're down by 17 points. We know how our offense has played this year. It's not built to come back from 17 Mm -hmm. points down. We move into the third quarter and on the surface, you know, Jones didn't have the worst game, a little over 250 passing yards and a touchdown. And his, third um, game in his last four starts where he didn't commit a turnover, which is very important. And, you know, some guys were good. Sterling Shepard, nine catches and a touchdown. The running game was what really brought this team back a little bit. Only 54 rushing yards. Third straight game where the Giants went under the century mark in rushing yards. And the Giants were unable to stop the run. Three players for Baltimore had over 75 rushing yards. That includes Lamar Jackson, who I like to call him Action Jackson. That's a funny nickname for him. And then the Giants, they couldn't get plays. You know, Dante Pettis's 20-yard catch was the longest play from scrimmage. And this was rough because despite the rough first half, the Giants, in fact, they'd outscore the Ravens 10-7 to in the second half. Our defense was really good. And that's a lot of credit given to Blake Martinez, who had 12 tackles while playing on a partially broken foot just so you all know, Um, that was huge. And the last thing I'm going to say about this game is the Giants started to creep back into the football game. 
they would score 10 points in the second half. They were only down 27 to 13. And then the Giants were forcing a punt. There was still hope. There wasn't much, but the Giants were competing. And that's what you like to see against good football teams, good playoff football teams. But a 14-point loss to a playoff team like the Baltimore Ravens, it tells you one thing. Your team still has work to do if they want to make the playoffs and win games down the stretch late in the season. And that's why we fell to 5-10. and 10. Yeah, and I think to piggyback off that, I think that's exactly what I was thinking. I think – that game pretty much told all Giant fans watching that, yeah, although we had that good stretch, we definitely were a flawed team. And I think it really exposed the lack of an edge rusher for sure, most importantly. However, despite that, we're five and nine, or no, six and nine, rather. No, 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 five and ten, sorry. Or five and ten, sorry. It wasn't a great division. That's That's all I know. But the crazy part about that is we still had a shot at the playoffs going into week 17 and say what you want about how the giants are playing all year. That was the goal all along. And they had, they had a shot. The Gi- the Cowboys like the Eagles are a team. The giants had struggled with since 2016 and the giants got off to a big start. They led 20 to six in the first half of the game, but then Dallas got a late field goal and then some turnovers helped keep them around. However, I will say this, the turnovers were not Daniel, jo- a Daniel Jones problem. There was one, where he tried to hand it off to Wayne Gallman. I don't know why they gave that turnover to Daniel Jones. I think that was more Wayne Gallman, not necessarily focusing on that one and being aware. But again, it's weird decision. The other one was the Evan Engram volleyball-like interception. That one, again, I'm pretty sure at least half of his interceptions were t- were targeted towards Evan Engram. Not sure. Again, not sure that was a Daniel Jones problem. So. You knew it wasn't going to be smooth sailing. However, he did end the season on a high note. Two of the touchdowns we scored in the first half were from Sterling Shepard. One of them receiving, and one was that big 23-yard end around to start off the game. And not to mention, he had eight of those catches for 113 yards. But of course, as I mentioned, in addition to the volleyball-like interception, our Pro Bowl tight end had two drops. But, of course, the real, the big hero for us in this game, actually there were two. Leonard Williams, because he had a career high of three sacks and he finished off with 11 and a half on the season. A huge bounce back, and I think we pretty much won that trade. Well, obviously we will, assuming they re-sign him, but I think they pretty much won that trade. And then, of course, he made the deflection that set up the game-winning Xavier McKinney pick to seal the deal for the Giants. And, of course, Graham Gannow, franchise record, 30 consecutive field goals. That was how they got the last three points of this game. The bad news, though, despite their three-game losing streak and going 4-2 and against the NFC East, the excitement was short-lived. You had the controversial Washington against Philadelphia game. Did Doug Peterson intentionally tank it? Who knows? We already discussed that. All I know is that eliminated the Giants, and as much as they showed improvements, they were, they were flawed, but they were still a very fun and watchable team which is more than you could say over the past few years. And Tom, let's talk about the highs and lows of this year. I think we kind of have a little bit of differing opinions on this. However, I think we can both agree that our own highs and lows were pretty much similar. No? Yeah. Um, 
And remember, folks, the Giants did go five and three down the stretch. I predicted this. They'd finish above 500 in the second half of the season, and that's exactly what they did. Um, By the way, can I give you another fun fact regarding the division? Yeah, sure. We were the only team in the NFC East to beat every division rival at least once. I gave you that fact this morning. Yes, you did. I just wanted to mention it. Um, You get full credit, but I thought it had to be put out for it. Thank you for bringing that up. That definitely is something good to throw in there. Um, Now, I want to say my high is cracking the code against Seattle. That that was our signature win of the season. And then our low was the Ingram drop against Philadelphia on the last drive. That resulted in a one-point loss. Now, I'm going to sort of agree with you on the Seattle game. I think that was absolutely huge and – I, I, that was definitely one of my favorite wins. However, I think if there's any other game that you could make the case for to be a signature win, as I explained in the Philadelphia recap, I think you could make a strong case for that one because, remember, that was our first win against them in a while. Philly was in first place at that time. It may seem strange to believe now considering how they finished, but they were in first, and there was a time where people thought they were the team to be in this horrible excuse for a division. So I'm going to say Philly, and also because of the long schneid they've had against them and because of all the many bad losses they've had in the past. So I'll say that and Seattle go hand in hand. However, my low point is is different from yours. I'm not going to say that the Philadelphia loss early in the season was not a bad one because obviously it was one that it should have won. For me, the low point was the Arizona game. And the reason I say this, one, I think they messed up on starting Daniel Jones. He, he should not have started this game. I was kind of on the fence about wanting him to play this game because I know how tough hamstring injuries are. And believe me, they're very tricky, but it wasn't even just that it was the fact that the giants had a lot of missed opportunities to make this a game and they were unable to cash in on those. As a result, they got blown out and it kind of had made the season go in a downwards foul. But again, that that's, these are the kind of losses that you see young teams have. And with that being said, how about we talk about the takeaways? So we're going to go over our season takeaways before getting to our top 10 Giants player reveal from the 2020 season. That's going to be our exciting segment at the end of the show. But for now, we're going to briefly go over some of the takeaways from this season. And Hank, first and foremost, it all starts with the man on the headset, Joe Judge. Uh, He's going to be here as head coach for a while. I thought he was really great. I mean, we've spoken, you and I, about him and how much – we love him and how excited we are um, to have him as our head coach. We look at other teams in our division, like Dallas is not too happy with McCarthy. And then Philadelphia is now on a search for a head coach of their own. So I'm kind of happy we have Joe judge. Is there anything you wanted to add about judge specifically? Yeah. I honestly think over the course of the next few years, he could end up being very well being the best of the coaches in the NFC East. I think I really don't know what else I can say about him that hasn't been said. He's really helped to establish a culture change. And there's just so many little things that he's done have really helped the Giants. Then, yeah, I think I pretty much said everything about I could say about Joe Judge all year. And my next couple of takeaways, they come on offense. Uh, Daniel Jones, year three for him will be a prove-it year. He only had 11 touchdown passes in year two. He did start 14 of the 16 games. Also, Saquon Barkley and Evan Ingram, I think both of them right now at the present time have unknown futures with this team. Ingram is playing on his fifth-year option, and then Saquon Barkley will be coming off a torn ACL next year. 
heading into his contract year. John Mara came out and stated that Barkley will be a giant for a long time, but it all depends on how he bounces back from that injury. Uh, I think Actually, this- not quite. He said he hopes he's a giant for a long time. That's I don't know. Say. That's, that's pretty much what I said. <laughs> but yeah, no, you either way, same idea. I think he does want Barkley to, to be a giant for a long time. But with that having been said, there is a bit of pressure from him. There's a lot of question marks to see what he can do coming off that ACL injury. But of course, I think Evan Engram is the one that has more pressure because, yeah, he made the Pro Bowl, but obviously it was kind of in the weirdest of circumstances. And he was very Jekyll and Hyde, to say the least. So it'll be interesting to see what he does. And if, especially if they draft Pitts in the first round, then you'll give him some competition. And who knows? Maybe that lights a fire under him. Maybe that gives him extra motivation. What I don't understand is how a guy who has one touchdown and drops over 10% of his targets makes the Pro Bowl. The man had 11 drops. How, how the hell did he make the Pro Bowl with 11 drops and one touchdown? It doesn't make sense to me. It really doesn't. It's a mystery. He That's gets all. so much media attention. That's why. I mean, look, you got a guy like Bob Tanya in Green Bay who had 10 touchdowns, and you're telling me Ingram deserves the Pro Bowl over him? Yeah, how did that not, guy not get attention? He was good. He was good. He had that big Monday night football game. I'm surprised he never really got heard from again. But if you look at the games that he played, he was he was a big reason the Packers won. The big one, probably one of Aaron Rodgers' favorite targets this year. And he's going to be a big factor for them on Saturday too, because you know Jalen Ramsey will be matched up against Devontae Adams. And Kyle commenting the fan vote is, is the reason. Yep, you're 100 right. People love Evan Ingram for some reason. There's some Giant fans that love him. Uh, I don't. I don't get it. Another but guy who really, I remember what Bob Papa said during one of the games. He also he brought up how opposing teams say, "Oh, how do you not like Evan Engram? He's so talented." But then he also points out the drops. So there. Another guy who had a real disappointing campaign was Darius Slayton. Had three touchdowns in the first few weeks of the season, and then um, just pretty much cooled off entirely. A lot of defenses started to hone in on him, took away the big play threat. And the offense also, uh, I felt like the offense kind of just wasn't there. And I think losing Saquon Barkley actually hurt Slayton's numbers more than anybody. Um, You know, it's just the way I kind of look at it. Um, And then it really shows that the Giants must address the wide receiver position this offseason. The Giants need to Uh, Get in a true number one wide receiver. There are multiple free agents out there like Allen Robinson from the Bears, Kenny Galladay from the Lions. And I have down Corey Davis from Tennessee, but I wasn't very impressed with him in the wild card game against Baltimore. And then, of course, in the draft, we have a couple Bama kids and Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddell and then Jamar Chase, who played with Joe Burrow at LSU, Hank and the Giants wide receivers just they didn't they didn't have a good year. They had the lowest yak per completion in the entire league, which I think the blame goes to yes, the wide receivers, but also Daniel Jones and more importantly Jason Garrett, because he's the one calling the plays. And if you remember, in two thousand four, Giants wide receivers, I believe, did not have a single touchdown. And then in 2005, they brought in free agent Plaxico Burris. I see a similar trend yeah. here, if you know what I mean. I kind of figured you were going there. I, I would love to see another game changer like Plax with those big hands that can create matchup problems. Just minus the shooting himself in the leg in the nightclub. 
I'd still take him over Odell any day of the week. Oh, and the words of Mike Francesa, I thought Boxco was nuts. He's a saint compared to Odell. Yeah, so we got to talk about um, – well, one other thing I wanted to mention. The last time the Giants actually drafted a wide receiver in the top 11, because we are picking 11th this year, was Ike Hilliard in 1997. It's been 24 years since the Giants addressed the wide receiver position that high in the draft. So not a big priority. And then another thing, too, Jason Garrett will likely be retained as the offensive coordinator, like it or not. He has gotten a couple of head coaching interviews with the Chargers and then apparently the Jets as well, but I don't see him really moving anywhere. I think I'm about 80% 80 sure Garrett's staying with us heading into 2021. Yeah, I'm not really sure he's leaving either. Yeah. But, Hank, I want to talk to you about the O-line. Ever since the firing of Mark Colombo, it seemed like this offensive line played better, but it still wasn't good enough. As good as the offensive line played in the second half of the season, they mm -hmm. finished 31st as a, as a, as a unit. And the, Chris Guzzo, the entertainer, brought this up yesterday on his Twitter feed. And, and you know, I, I really agree with him that if you're content with the current five on our offensive line, and that includes Will Hernandez over Shane Lemieux, you're kidding yourself. This yeah. is not a five you want to put out there next year. You got to – I mean, there, there's a good chance they offload $12 million with Kevin Zeitler. Nick Gates and Andrew Thomas are the only two that should be guaranteed starters at their respective positions next year. I still don't think Matt Pert should be the full-time starter at right tackle yet heading into next year. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that either. And I think he brings up a good point. I think I think maybe you might need to get another lineman in the draft possibly to make that position deeper. And but with that having been said, yeah, you're right. It has it has been improved for sure. I'm just not hundred percent sold on it yet. Yeah. Nick Gates and Kevin Zeitler were a couple standouts. Andrew yep. Thomas, I my opinion, he will have a dominant sophomore season. And then the Giants are going to have to make a decision with Nate Solder because he heard that Andrew that. Thomas was playing through an injury this year. Actually, I heard about that. He uh, apparently was playing with a bad foot. I think that might explain why he that might partially explain why he struggled. I also think part of it may have had to do with Colombo wanting him to unlearn what he learned at Georgia. But again, who knows? We're not at the training camp. We're not around these guys. But that this is just my speculation since the beginning of the season. Yeah, 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 exactly. With that having been said, though, he never complained about that, and he was playing through it, and he was getting better over the course of the season. That I think that counts for something. That's really impressive. I still like Andrew Thomas more than Makai Becton, for sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I think, yeah, I think the injury definitely might have slowed him up a bit, but I think let's see what he can do fully healthy. I think he'll be really good, and I agree he'll definitely be dominant. And, Hank, who is the man of the hour? Patrick Graham. This guy was a genius. And as I said, looking at this defense on paper, it's not, it's a flawed defense. He made them ninth in the league. That is what you would call excellent work. If you check out Bobby Skinner puts out a lot of giants content. We had him the week, uh, I think after Cincinnati or after Arizona, I'm not sure. 
but he pretty much put all the analytics up there, how the defense under Patrick Grimm saw drastic improvements as compared to James Betcher back in 2019. So we definitely got a huge upgrade there and the Giants ended up re-signing Patrick Graham to a contract extension. So he will be here to stay in 2021. Really looking forward to it. Yeah, I don't I don't think he wanted to leave either. I think he really liked working for Joe Judge, and I think he really liked working with the defensive core that he has. Who I think wouldn't? I, I think that's an I think it's an example of the Giants culture slowly changing for the better. Yeah. That's true. Very true. Um, And let's talk about probably my favorite player on this team. And we show off the newest jersey to my collection. Oh, it came. Wow. Look at that. Yes. This was a Christmas present. This was a Christmas present. Shout out, Mom. Thank you so much. Blake Martinez, 150 tackles. He's been a true leader. And, you know, to say that he tackles anything and everything – would be an understatement of the year. However, I think we need another linebacker to compliment him. Devontae Downs was pretty solid. He had he had some big moments, but I don't know if he's the answer. I definitely feel – or take – did I say Devontae Crowder? Yeah, you said Devontae Downs. I wanted to smack you through the screen. <laughs> oh, Lord. I meant take Crowder. My I know. Name. I know that's who you meant. <laughs> take Crowder. No, Devontae Downs, he can – no, I don't, want, I don't want this guy back next year. What am I saying? Hey, Crowder has been a decent player for the Giants. Mr. Not-So-Irrelevant has had a number of games where he had like six or seven tackles. I think Blake Martinez said he actually liked playing with him too this year. So I think that definitely counts for something. And I just don't know if he's necessarily going to be the complimentary linebacker. I think we definitely need another one. And the Giants have often had this problem for years with needing linebackers. Well, Downs the free agent. I doubt he's coming back. David Mayo, this is my, <laughs> my, my my opinion on David Mayo is I think he was not 100% coming off that torn meniscus. I think you want to see what you can get out of him next year when healthy. They were playing him at edge rusher a lot too, especially after all those guys went down. I think Mayo needs to be at that inside linebacker position. I think he should be a spell, kind of like what – um, Chase Blackburn was in a sense. I feel like that's how you should be using David Mayo, but maybe to a lesser degree, he really wasn't the answer either. So we could use a complimentary linebacker in this draft for sure, or in free agency. But again, the giants right now, they have to clear up some cap space and Mayo was one of the guys they could be parting ways with. I think if they cut him, so he has two years left on his deal, the giants would save a little over two and a half million by cutting him. So it'll be left to be seen if they value him enough on special teams to keep him. But um, let's move on to one of my personal favorites, uh, Bradbury Bunker. We call him James Bradbury. We pretty much found out the real James Bradbury. Everyone's like, oh, what a reach. He's overpaid, not a good signing. Top five cornerback in the league easily. Personally, there were times this year where Bradbury was the best corner in the NFL. And I think you can make the argument that he's top three. I really do. The three interceptions, the forced fumbles, the 18 passes defended, tied for second in the league. It comes into fruition on how good James Bradbury really is. 
Yeah, and like I said, I still have that image in my head of him just ripping that ball away from Allen Robinson, causing that interception. I think that right then and there told me he was going to be an impact player, and he's been amazing since. We got it on the graphic. Let's plug that quick. It's the second picture to the left. Yeah, that I like how you put the pictures in chronological order pretty much of all the big games, or, or most of the big games, I should say. Yeah. But the fact wow. of the matter is, I think it was really a key play this season. And, yeah, I, I just remember watching that game with you at uh, Vinny's. That was that was great. That Bears game, man, that's a, that was a big one. And then, uh, yeah, Brad Berry was great. Logan Ryan was an excellent last-minute ad. He was electric for us, 94 tackles, three forced fumbles. He earned the contract extension on Christmas Day. Uh, the only problem is Logan Ryan's not a, a true number two corner. He is a hybrid type of player who's playing a lot more safety, a lot more nickel situation. Um, I, I think he was great, and Hank, the second cornerback position must be addressed in the offseason. We got to look at the guys we had in as the number two corner. It started with Corey Ballantyne, who was cut midseason. That experiment went terribly. Then we tried Isaac Yottam, who was – Eh, got hurt. He and had his Ryan, moments, but he wasn't great. He wasn't. And then they tried Ryan Lewis. And Ryan Lewis, I think, was better than Yadam, but he got hurt. And then they went back to Lewis again. Well, Julian Love was had his solid moments this year. Yeah, I view him more as a safety, though. He's like a backup yeah. safety, in my opinion. But um, the second cornerback position is a top three offseason priority. For Very sure. Important. We're going to preview more of the offseason next week. But as of right now, we have to really hone in on getting that second corner because Logan Ryan can only do so much. So we will see. Now, Hank, Leonard Williams, big cat, balled out, career high 11 and a half sacks. Now, he was great. So was the entire defensive line. But here's the question Do him and Dalvin Tomlinson stay intact? on that defensive line because that's good. Leonard Williams played so well, he may have played himself out of our price range. Yeah, I think Leonard Williams definitely is going to get a big payday from the Giants come this offseason, and he's a very important player to sign. He balled out, and another reason it's important, as I kind of alluded to earlier, the trade at the time – was being ridiculed and mocked, and now you want to justify making that trade by resigning him. <laughs> Otherwise, it goes all for nothing. Now, then there's another. Then here's the conundrum: Dalvin Tomlinson. Now, we've talked about this before. The Giants have had many a defensive tackle come and do well and emerge as a decent player, but then leave once the rookie contract is up. Jonathan Hankins, Cornelius Griffin, Barry Cofield are example of those kinds of players. Will Dalvin Tomlinson be the next one? Personally, in a perfect world, you'd hope that the Giants sign them, can sign both of them. I'm just not 100% sure that that's going to happen. I think for for Leonard Williams, I think that's a, there's a 90% chance that we keep him. I, th- I think he's definitely going to stay. I'm very confident in that. It's Dalvin Tomlinson, I'm not too sure. And, we, and look, even if we do lose him, it's not the end of the world. We've had defensive tackles be replaced many a time. So I wouldn't, I'm not going to be crying over spilled milk if that happens, but 
I just think if they if I were Dave Gettleman, if there's only one guy out of the two, I'd resign. It's Leonard Williams. That's Big Dave's boy, Davey boy, Big Cat, Big Cat. Uh, lack of edge rusher, one of my favorites too. Yeah, the lack of edge rusher presence was clear this year when we lost Lorenzo Carter in Week Five against Dallas. Then O'Shane Zimenez went down a couple weeks later. We didn't see him again. And then Marcus Golden got traded to Arizona for a sixth-round pick. So all of a sudden, Kyler Fackrell was the last man standing, unexpectedly became the lead edge rusher after he started out as a rotational guy, getting around 50 60% of the snaps. And all of a sudden, he's our main guy. And all these rookies like Coughlin and Brown, we signed Sheard. It was clear as day that the lack of edge rusher was potent. Especially if you looked at that Ravens game. Yeah, that one was the biggest. That one was the telltale sign, if anything. But then let's talk about Xavier McKinney. He kind of emerged late into the season. Didn't really get a lot of reps, but I think that's probably because they wanted to be a little cautious of him because he was coming off that injury. But over the course of the season, he had some big plays, especially that game-winning interception against Dallas, which almost went for not. Thank you, Gallman. But... Again, he's a guy I have a lot of high hopes for next season. I think he can probably complement Logan Ryan pretty well, for sure. And I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And then there's also – and then last but not least, let's talk about the kicker, Graham Gano. He has been straight money. Best kicker best kicker we've had in a long time, really. Like, I know Aldrich Rosas had a good season. I know Josh Brown had, a, had like, a few good seasons. They weren't really consistent. Graham Gano is a guy that we know has a proven track record of, of making absolutely big kicks when it matters most. And this is another guy, suffice to say, is really going to help us. And as Lance Meadow aptly said on, on the episode where we had him, he's a weapon. Yeah, absolutely. He, he missed one set, field goal this year, too. He did. He set franchise record with the amount of field goals in a row he made. So, And that field goal was – the one field goal he missed was like a 50-something yarder. So he's really a guy you can trust. And the yep. crazy part is he missed more extra points, too. He Just did. Two. He did. Um, Hank, here's my final takeaway from this season. I think I know where you're going to go with this one. I think it's pretty much the same place that I'm going with this one. Dave That's Gettleman. One. Dave Gettleman. He had a solid 2020 offseason, but it wasn't great in 2018, and it wasn't good in 2019 either. It's playoffs or bust for Dave in 2021. Is this an overreaction, or do you agree? No, and I've said multiple times, even though I've technically been satisfied with some of the moves he made, I'm still a bit skeptical. Like, a lot of the moves he's made in the past, like, remember, there's a reason why I wasn't satisfied with the Leonard Williams trade initially. There's also a reason why I was kind of skeptical about Saquon Barkley, and there's even a reason why I was skeptical about Daniel Jones. However, this year, not as much. However, will I be skeptical about his moves this offseason? That remains to be seen. So I don't know. And the fact that he's only won 15 games, that doesn't really do much to get rid of my skepticism. So, yeah, I think you have to go to the playoffs. In the NFL, it's about results. And after four years, I think this is when the grace period ends. I'd say nine wins is pretty much... If, if the Giants win nine games, then I think he's safe for another year at this point. Well, he's headed in the right direction. He's here to stay. He's not going too far right now. And 
on that note, let's um, let's get into our top ten player reveal. So this is going to be a lot of fun. So we each picked our top ten players from this Giants team and how this is going to work. I'm just going to show the graphic, and we'll just go over. I have a ticker below of our rankings, one through ten, and we'll explain why. And, Hank, you'll go first. Um, get your graphic up and your top ten. I believe we're pretty similar, but there are a couple of significant differences in there. So – Here's your top 10. I'll remove that. Pen. All right. Let's go. So for my top 10, just let me go from a 10 to 1, as, as as we usually do in these types of shows. For the bottom two, I figured I'd put a few awesome. Before, actually, no. You know what? First, I'm going to start off with some honorable mentions. And those such met players are Sterling Shepard, who, even though he kind of had a rough start and didn't really start to play until week seven because he had that turf toe in week two, he slowly emerged to be our clutch receiver. So, but because he didn't really play a lot of games and he didn't really start making the big plays until later, I couldn't really put him on this list. Daniel Jones is another one. He he's another one who really slowly got better as the season went along. But again, because of that slow start in the first half, that was kind of too much for me to put him on the list. And then other guys, Graham Gano, I think that speaks for for itself. Twenty nine out of thirty, or sorry, thirty out of thirty one field goals, rather amazing. And then we have another defensive tackle, Dexter Lawrence, who had a pretty solid year. However, I don't know if he quite did as well as the other guys on my list. So let's start with number 10 and 9. I had two offensive linemen. Kevin Zeitler rounds out this list at the bottom. He wasn't the best out of the offensive linemen, but I think he proved to be a key leader on this team. So for that, he earns a place on this list. Andrew Thomas, though, slowly improved. I know he had a rough start, so because of that rough start, I couldn't really put him any higher than in the bottom two. Nevertheless, playing with that bad foot and still doing as well as he did, that counts for something, so he gets number nine on this list. However, and not to mention, he also did not allow a sack during a certain stretch of the season, and he paved the way for the player that is number eight on my list. That would be the Wayne Train, number 22, Wayne Gallman. He had that streak of six games in a row, scoring a touchdown, and not to mention he had some big gains that really helped the Giants, especially in that Seahawk game. And not to, and also, this is the guy I, I just I like his running style. He's a typical north to south runner. He doesn't really do anything too fancy. He just gets you the yardage you need, and very underrated and solid player. Wayne Gallman is number eight. And now I think for the rest of this list, you're going to notice a pattern here, and that is that I put a lot of defensive players. Dalvin Tomlinson at number 10, a very solid defensive tackle. As I said, whether he stays or goes, it remains to be seen. I think he had a decent season. However, there were other defensive players that I think had just a bit more of an impact, so I did put him at number seven, but nonetheless, he was pretty solid. Number six, let's go with Jabril Peppers. That He had a key game against Washington. Those picks were very important, and if you really look at it, he very well may have been a big reason the Giants were still alive down to the weeks to game number 256 of the season. Very important. Made a lot of catch plays. However, there's another safety that I had to put ahead of him, and that's Logan Ryan. And not just because of the big play he made, plays he made, he, was, he became a true leader on this team. And I think that plus the big plays he made, such as the one, another one against Washington, 
I think that was enough for him to just barely crack a spot on my top five list. Now, number four might surprise you. Why is Nick Holtz up there an offensive lineman? Well, you know what? This guy, in my opinion, was the best of the hog mollies, as Dave Gettleman likes to call him. He did not miss a single game, and he did not allow a single sack. In my eyes, he was the most underrated player on this Giants team. And you know what? I think that has to count for something. And I know that might seem like a stretch to you. He gets my number four spot. And now for number for the, my top three players, these, if you, I don't think my top three will be a surprise to you at all. Number three, let's go with Leonard Williams, the team leader in sacks. And he had big plays against Seattle and the Cowboys. That automatically put him in the top three. Now, why I couldn't put him a little bit higher only because he didn't have as good of a stretch against Baltimore, Cleveland, and Arizona. But nevertheless, he had a big season. There's a reason I think he's going to get paid. So give me Leo for number three. Number two, Bradbury Bunker. What's more I can say about him that needs to be said? He was a great cornerback, probably top five in the league. And he held a lot of good receivers to average days. He's been vital and you could make the case that this guy was Dave Gettleman's best pickup this offseason. However, there was just one player that stood out to me. That would be my guy, Blake Martinez, number one. Why do I put him at number one? Simple. He carried the linebacking core. He tackled anything and everything that moved, had 150 of them, and not to mention he emerged as a true leader, and he played with the broken foot, while not missing a single game, that uh, that tells me a lot. That counts for a lot. So for that, he's my number one player. All right. So excellent. Tom, list. Let me hear yours. Um, so first off, I just want to say excellent list. Um, I agree with pretty much all of your picks. I think there's an argument for all of them. I'm not so sure about Andrew Thomas, but other than that, I. I pretty much agree with everything that you have. Um, but yeah, we'll collaborate once we go through mine as I've kept these suspicions on my end up long enough. So going to get it up and share my screen and go over my top 10 Giants players list. So, all right. Number 10, we have Kevin Zeitler. I think Zeitler, in my opinion, is on paper, the best offensive lineman on this football team. Gates definitely had the best season, and he learned mm -hmm. a different position, which that deserves a lot of credit. Gates is one of my three honorable mentions. Uh, did not miss a single sack and allowed no sacks. Um, yeah. And then my other two honorable mentions were Wayne Goldman. I think uh, he couldn't crack my top ten. I, I kind of replaced him with Sterling Shepard. Um, I, I was having a big – I was having a really hard time picking between those two. And then my other honorable mention is Kyler Fackrell in 12 games played, had four sacks. I mean, he missed four games due to the injury, so he was pretty impressive. And, um, yeah, Daniel Jones, Evan Ingram, none, none of those guys made my honorable mentions. Not even Andrew Thomas, actually. But that's uh, – anyway, I like Zeitler a lot. What Zeitler brings is excellent pass blocking. He was the 31st. I'm sorry, 23rd ranked pass blocker on PFF at his position. This man was really the lone vet from last year. Um, so I think he cracks my list for that reason, and he only had four penalties. He was solid. 
Sterling Shepard comes in at number nine for me. Three touchdown catches uh, despite missing four games. He's a borderline top 25, 30 receiver in this league. Had the highest catch percentage of his career. He's also one of the better route runners in the NFL. And to get 66 catches for over 650 yards and still miss four games, that's pretty impressive in this Giants offense. So he's number nine for me. Number eight, Dexter. Dexter Lawrence in his second year had four sacks, 53 tackles, 10 quarterback hits from an interior defensive lineman. That's pretty impressive. In my opinion, he must be on my list. Along with Leonard Williams and Dalvin Tomlinson, Dexter Lawrence is already a top 20 run stuffer in the uh, NFL at his position. He is the 16th ranked interior defensive lineman, 20th against the run. Coming in at number seven, I put DT, Dalvin Tomlinson, three and a half sacks on the year. All career highs with four passes defended. Uh, yes, four passes defended, 10 quarterback hits, and eight tackles for a loss. Number six, I have Jabril Peppers, Spicy Peppers, local kid out of New Jersey, 91 tackles, 11 passes defended. The 91 tackles weren't because, oh, well, the runners and the receivers are getting past the linebackers. Peppers was a really good run stopper at the line of scrimmage. A little reminiscent of of Landon Collins when he was here a few years ago. Peppers also had the lowest missed tackle percentage of his career. He was great. He also averaged 12.5 yards on 15 punt returns. It's not easy to get punt return yards as a punt returner in 2020, and he did that as well. That element of his game has him sitting just outside of the top five for me. Um, Not to mention his two-and-a-half sacks from the safety position. Number five, similar to yours, I have Logan Ryan. Got the Christmas Day contract extension. He causes turnovers, had a pick and three forced fumbles in 2020. 94 tackles and nine passes defended for a man who was a last-minute ad in the offseason. Number four, again, uh, I have this guy really high. I don't know if you brought him up as an honorable mention or not. I did. I did. did. Grant Gano is fourth on my list. He missed only one field goal all year long, and he was so good he got a contract extension mid-year. Hank, there were weeks where Graham Gano was the only part of our offense. He was able to make great long kicks and able to keep us in games. I think he needs to be on my list at number four. I don't blame you. That's a good choice. Yeah. I know I probably could have I probably could have put him on mine. I wasn't necessarily thinking about putting a kicker. However, with that being said, I do think I can't argue with you on your choice. I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And then we move into my top three. It's the exact same as yours, but I'll give you my reasoning, of course. Leonard Williams, big cat, 14 tackles for a loss, 11 and a half sacks. He's the sixth best uh, interior defensive lineman against the run. He balled out this year. Congrats to big cat. James Bradbury, true Bradbury bunker. Second team all pro, tied second in the league in passes defended, had the three interceptions and the two forced fumbles. According to Pro Football Focus, he's the seventh best cornerback in football in 2020. He held elite wide receivers to minimal yardage all year long. Names include Terry McLaurin, Juju Smith-Schuster, Cooper Cup, um, Amari Cooper in Dallas. He was excellent. Mm-hmm. And then number one is Blake Martinez. This was the prized free agent acquisition from Green Bay 
151 tackles on the season and three sacks. This man was the captain of the defense. Yes, as Hank displays his jersey. He was the best part of he was the best part of this defense. And why were the Giants able to win six games this year and be competitive in pretty much all of their games but two? Because of their defense. So that's my top 10 list, and I love Blake Martinez as the number one giant from 2020. And now we can discuss my list. And you know what? Another reason that I think I put him, I don't think he really had a bad game this year. Maybe like one or two. I think ultimately that was what factored into putting him at number one on my list, and I'm sure you probably might have felt the same way. He had one average game. The other 15 were great. That's why he's number one. Consistency is key with me, and you got that from Blake and Bradbury. That's why they're my top two. Leonard Williams, you got a lot of consistency from as well. Yep. Graham Gano is uh, is that high on my list because of what he was able to do coming in late in the offseason again for Altrick Rosas. That's why Graham Gano and Logan Ryan were really great. And notice how four of my top five are free agents. It goes to show you the type of offseason that Dave Gettleman had and what the past regime was not able to do was to keep players and grow them and develop them. You look at the bottom of my list, you have a guy like Dexter Lawrence, that Jabril Pe- uh, that uh, not Jabril Peppers, that Dave Gettleman drafted. Jabril Peppers, a guy who Dave Gettleman acquired for. Almost all of these guys, with the exception mm-hmm. of Dalvin Tomlinson and uh, Sterling Shepard, Eight out of those ten are Dave Gettleman guys. If you yeah, I think I think you could say the same thing about my list too. Yeah, which a lot of them are Dave Gettleman guys. And yeah, I know you can. I know you didn't have Andrew Thomas. Like I said, I know he got off to that rough start, but I think the way he played in the second half was a dramatic improvement. And to me, that kind of counted for something. That's why I didn't. I felt compelled to include him on my list. So out of my list, you left Gano, Lawrence, and Shepard off. Out of yes. your list, I left Gates, Gallman, and Thomas off. Correct. So we had we went seven for ten, and our top three were the same. Actually, our top three, five, six, and seven, and ten were the same. Four, eight, and nine are the only three spots that the two of us differed. To be honest, I think when we were making these lists, the no- number one through three were never a doubt. I th- I don't know about you, but I had my mind made up when I made one through three. Yeah, it was really a matter of go- of who would take the bottom seven spots. Absolutely, I agree a hundred percent. And yeah, you can really make the case for either of the players you mentioned. And I think for me, nine and ten really you could even argue would be interchangeable because I think they both had solid years and they both showed what an improved offensive line is. But, of course, as as we alluded to, it's still not 100% where we want it to be. And there's a lot of areas where the Giants aren't really where we want to be. But you know what? I'm looking forward to see how the offseason plays out. I'm really hoping they nailed this draft, and I'm hoping they nail free agency. And I can't wait. And um, Mr. Rothschild, he actually said he was surprised Jabril Peppers wasn't higher on our list. Yeah, no, it's – that was – I know – I thought I was debating to where to put him too. I wanted to put him a little bit. However, in the end, I think Logan Ryan had some of the bigger plays. Again, you really could interchange those guys. I think both of them were very solid at safety. I just thought that Logan Ryan 
in addition to having a strong play, I think his leadership kind of put him over the edge for, for, for Peppers, in my opinion. But make no mistake, Peppers is great. Good return man, and he made some big plays this year. But, yeah, it was a really close call. Tom, what say you? You know, I, I, I agree with Adam. I think in part why I put Peppers at six as well is because um, there were a couple of plays this year, the Philadelphia game in particular, he got burnt by Boston Scott late. Um, but I think he was pretty much – I mean, he was a captain on the defense too, him and Blake Martinez respectively, and I think you have to carry weight into that. I think Peppers could have easily cracked the top five for me uh, if DeAndre Baker didn't get into trouble, number one, and if we didn't sign Graham Gano and kept Aldrich Rosas. I think you're talking about me making Bradbury as number four instead of number six. So mm-hmm. – um, yeah, I think Peppers would have been fourth for me if those two things happened. But he he was real great. Um, and yeah. on that note, uh, just wanted to thank everybody for watching our live stream tonight, commenting, sharing the stream with your friends, family, tuning in. This was great uh, as we've approached an hour and 45 minutes now here on our show. We just want to let all of you folks know that next week will be our last show for a little bit of Big Blue Avenue. We are going to look ahead into our – 2021 schedule it is out we're going to go over that and we're going to make our off-season predictions as far as who we think is going to stay who we think is going to go and free agents we should potentially sign who we should move via trade we're going to get very into depth about these two categories right here so i'm looking forward to focusing just on these two um things next week it'll be fun it'll be a shorter show and then From then, we're going to take a little break from Big Blue Avenue um, for a few weeks. And then as we get closer to the draft, we are going to start um, talking about the Giants. And, yes, Adam Rothschild, I agree. Let's go Rangers. Although Not looking so great right now, but we need a third-period spark. That's all I can say. Yep. Um, It's it's really weird having hockey back, but it's definitely a lot of fun. And I just want to quickly announce that. Sam Cardona from The Girl Who Talks Sports will be joining us for exclusive off-season content. So we look forward, and maybe we'll have her join us next week. We'll see if we can get her on and maybe yeah, talk some Giants football. That, that would be excellent. So, yeah. All right. Hank, anything you'd like to add? This was a great show. Yeah, I think this was a lot of fun, and it's weird. For a 6-17, and 17, this is probably the first time in a while I've actually – kind of somewhat enjoyed looking back on a giant season and there were a lot more likable players really the, on my top 10 was more fun because there were a lot more likable players now than in years past i would say what about you there were definitely a lot of likable players. And remember this team was dealt a raw hand early this is a young football team it's not always about what your record is. It's about the improvement that you make fundamentally in games and how you finish. And the Giants finished really well uh, in the second half of the 2020 season. And you know what? As I look forward to what hopefully can be a red, better Ranger season than this game, I'm looking forward, though, to seeing what the Giants do in this offseason. This is a real – it's a real telltale sign of how we'll judge Dave Gettleman and – but I think it'll work out well. I think Joe Judge is definitely going to have a hand in some of the decisions. So we'll see. Let me just knock on this wooden table. And here we go. And, Tom, as always, thank you for having me on the show. I've had a lot of fun talking Giants with you this season. Looking forward to doing it once more. And then 
popping back every now and then. And then I'm of course next season, I I'm getting ahead of myself, but point is thanks again for having me. And to those who commented, thanks again, you're what make our show going without you. The show isn't as good. So yeah, Tom commenters, viewers, thank you guys so much. It's been a real pleasure. It has. We do have one more show next week though, at seven to 9 PM here on Review and Preview Sports, Big Blue Avenue. We may go a little shorter. We'll have Sam Cardona. Hank, on behalf of you, I'm saying so long. Hope you all have a good night, a great weekend. Enjoy the hockey. Enjoy the divisional round games. You've been watching Big Blue Avenue here on Facebook Live at Review and Preview Sports. Have a good night.